So some of you know I've been exploring data engineering for the past uh, few months. And one of the more interesting mysteries if you're new to data engineering is wondering what happened <laughs> to big data. You heard a lot about big data and everyone's talking about how big their data is going to be. And then suddenly it's not cool anymore. Uh, there's a generation of technology that's out of date. And you're, I always wonder, like, what happened to it? What can we learn from it as, as lessons? Uh, especially if you weren't around, you know, you might be missing out or repeating the lessons that you don't know. So the big question that most people come across eventually is what happened to Hadoop? And uh, so I think we're going to start off with essentially what is Hadoop? And then we'll cover in a future episode, um, why did Hadoop die? Have you ever wondered how Google does their queries into their mountains of data or how Facebook is able to quickly deal with such large quantities of information? Well, today we're going into the wild west of data management called big data. Now, while you may or may not have heard of big data and other terms like Hadoop or MapReduce, you can be sure that they will be a regular part of your conversations in the coming months and years. This is because 90% of the world's data was generated in just the last two years. Yeah, you heard that right. All the data in the world was mostly generated in the last two years, and this accelerated trend is going to continue. All this new data is coming from smartphones, social networks, trading platforms, machines, and other sources. Since a lot of this data is already available, the question is whether you're going to use it or not. In the past, when larger and larger quantities of data needed to be interrogated, businesses would simply write larger and larger checks to their database vendors of choice. However, in the early 2000s, companies like Google were running into a wall. Their vast quantities of data were simply too large to pump through a single database bottleneck, and they simply could not write a large enough check to process the data. To address this, the Google Labs team developed an algorithm that allowed for their large data calculations to be chopped up into smaller chunks and mapped to many computers, then when the calculations were done, be brought back together to produce the resulting data set. They called this algorithm MapReduce. This algorithm was later used to develop an open source project called Hadoop, which allows applications to run using the MapReduce algorithm. Now with all these new terms, it's easy to get lost about what's going on here. Simply put, we are processing data in parallel rather than in serial. So why do we call it the Wild West of Data Management? Well, even though the MapReduce algorithm was released eight years ago, it's still very reliant on Java coding to be successfully implemented. However, the market is rapidly evolving and tools are coming available to help businesses adopt this powerful architecture without the major learning curve of Java code. So should your business be getting into Hadoop? There are really two ingredients that are driving organizations into investigating Hadoop. One is a lot of data, generally larger than 10 terabytes. The other is high calculation complexity, like statistical simulations. Any combination of these two ingredients with the need to get results faster and cheaper will drive your return on investment. Over the long run, Hadoop will be part of our day-to-day -day information architecture. We will start to see Hadoop playing a central role in statistical analysis, ETL processing, and business intelligence. So that was audio from one of the more popular videos on Hadoop that I found back in 2012, so that's exactly 10 years ago. Uh, and then they also followed up with a comparison of Hadoop versus SQL. Uh, this is from the Intricity 101 podcast. I think a really, really good overview at that point in time. You know, I, I like to time travel because you don't get the benefit of hindsight, you're just listening to people talk about Hadoop as though it's the future, even though, you know, 10 years later on, uh, you know it's not going to last, but uh, these guys at the point in time didn't know that. 
If you've been accustomed to working with traditional SQL databases, hearing somebody talk about Hadoop can sound like a crazy mess. So in this video, I'm going to try and simplify only three of the many differences between Hadoop and traditional SQL sources, which hopefully will provide some context as to where each medium is used. The first difference I want to point out is schema on write versus schema on read. When we move data from SQL Database A to SQL Database B, we need to have some information on hand before we write to Database B. For example, we have to know what the structure of Database B is and how to adapt the data from Database A to fit that structure. Additionally, we need to ensure that the data being transferred meets the data types that the database is expecting. If we attempt to load something that does not meet what Database B is expecting, then it will spit out errors and it will reject the data. This is what we call schema on write. Hadoop, on the other hand, has a schema on read approach. So when we write data into what's called the Hadoop distributed filing system, we just bring it in without dictating any gatekeeping rules. Then when we want to read the data, we apply the rules to the code that reads the data, rather than pre-configuring the structure of the data ahead of time. Now the concept of schema on write versus schema on read has profound implications on how the data is stored in Hadoop versus SQL, which leads us to our second difference. In SQL, the data is stored in a logical form with interrelated tables and defined columns. In Hadoop, the data is a compressed file of either text or other data types. However, the moment the data enters into Hadoop, the file or data is replicated across multiple nodes in the Hadoop distributed filing system. So, for example, let's say that we're loading Twitter data and we have a large Hadoop cluster of a thousand servers. My Twitter data might be replicated across 60 of them, along with all the other profiles of Twitter users. Hadoop keeps track of where all the copies of my profile are. Now, this seems like a waste of space, but it's actually the secret sauce to the massive scalability magic in Hadoop, and this leads us to our third difference. Now, you're going to have to stay with me here while I explain this. When thinking about big data solutions like Hadoop, think of something architected for an unlimited number of servers. So let's stick with my earlier example and we'll say that we have 1,000 servers in our Hadoop cluster. Now imagine I'm searching Twitter data and I want to see all the sentences that have the word unhappy. The structure of the query in Hadoop will come in the form of a Java program. And that program defines the request and distributes the calculation of that search across all the 60 replicated copies of my profile in HDFS. However, instead of each copy conducting the exact same search, the Java code will break apart the workload so that each server is working on just a portion of my Twitter history. So perhaps in this case, the Java program assigns some time blocks in history each server should work on. As each copy of my Twitter data finishes its assigned segment of history, the answers are delivered to a reducer on a separate server cluster. And this cluster is responsible for adding up the tallies or producing a consolidated list. Now, let's say that one of those 60 plus servers breaks down or has some sort of issue while processing my request. The question now is, should I hold up the entire response to the user because I don't have a completed data set yet? 
It's the answer to this question, which is one of the primary differentiators between Hadoop and SQL. Hadoop would say no, and it would provide the user with an immediate answer, and eventually it would have a consistent answer. SQL would say yes, we must have complete consistency across all the nodes before we release anything to the user, which is called a two-phase commit. Neither approach is right or wrong, as both have an important role to play based on the type of data being used. This eventual consistency methodology in Hadoop is a far more realistic method of reading continuously updating feeds of unstructured data across thousands of servers. While the two-phase commit methodology for SQL databases is well suited for managing and rolling up transactions, so we're sure we get the right answer. However, with Hadoop, we do have a caveat. Because the query is literally a mapping and answer consolidation program, which propagates to a flexible number of servers, the sky is the limit on how creative we can get with that program. But as you'd guess, this Java-based query also increases the complexity of talking to Hadoop. For this reason, you'll find a lot of packaged solutions for Hadoop that provide some structure and focus to the Hadoop world. For example, Facebook created something called Hive, which allowed their team members that didn't know how to write Java code to write queries in standard SQL. Hadoop is so flexible that Facebook was able to build a program to essentially mimic SQL behavior on demand. This flexibility is also one of the reasons it's so hard to nail down a single practice or even a typical deployment type. The good news is, is that some of the leading tools for data management and analysis are now beginning to natively write MapReduce programs and provide prepackaged schemas on read so that organizations don't have to hire expensive data scientists to get value from this powerful architecture. Okay, so that was the summary, the, the sort of positive presentation of Hadoop. I think it's worth uh, always keeping in mind when talking about ancient <laughs> technology that there used to be huge proponents of it. There used to be businesses run on it, giant conferences where everybody uh, got together and agreed that this was going to be the future, only for that to go away in essentially the span of the next five to seven years. I think the other learning for me is that this is essentially the first distributed system in a box that uh, most people encountered. And me personally at Temporal, it is a form of distributed systems in a box, uh, but so are the distributed databases that are out there. And then of course, with the coming of age of serverless and Kafka and other queuing systems, uh, there are even more ways to distribute work. So um, very interesting evolution, especially if you understand a little bit of history and put it in context with technologies that people still talk about and use today.